morning, everyone. Ooh, this sounds a bit loud, just to me. Okay. Maybe it's my ears. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in Sydney and to be sharing the word today. So in Nehemiah 8, if you'll turn there, that's where we'll spend most of today. It's a good question to think about. Do we actually hunger for the word of God? That was something that, I mean, we're used to reading the word, but and it's something that is on our to-do list, hopefully, and that's that's a good thing. But do you really want to hear from God? And I think theoretically we say, oh, absolutely, I would love to hear from God. But what priority do we have to actually feed? What? And it's not like a priority, it's a need. How much do you need the Word? What sort of place does the Word have in governing your decisions and your life? I think the the realization that God alone has the words of life and his life is the life we want, that really is key in, in making his word a priority. And the effect of hearing God's word, as we'll see today, is more than just knowledge. It's more than the formulation of doctrine or theology, but it moves us to repent. It moves us to change. It has the power to transform our lives, and it brings rejoicing when we do obey. And it would be a real shame if the Bible was lumped in with things like movies or games that we sometimes are in the mood for. You know, you have movies that you've bought or something. You're like, what are we in the mood for tonight? Oh, let's, why don't we play a game? Or why don't we do this or that? And to, to kind of put the Bible in that category of, you know, we haven't done that for a while. Why don't we do this? But to realize that this is something I need in my life. I need to hear from God. And so he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And just because God is speaking doesn't mean that I am listening. I have begun to learn that. Uh, So we've reached a point in Nehemiah where the walls have been rebuilt. Walls of Jerusalem in 52 days, despite opposition, despite people resisting the work. And as Governor Nehemiah, he gave charge of Jerusalem to Hanani, a fellow Jew, He talked about how the gates were to be opened and shut, how they were to be guarded. And Nehemiah 7.5, it begins by saying, Then God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And chapter 7 is a genealogy that is a parallel passage with Ezra chapter 2. A lot of names, numbers of people. Overall, they're identical and a, a testimony of the care they took to record that the people living in Jerusalem actually had a right to be there. And uh, you think about the importance that Nehemiah placed on that, that he wanted people who were united living in Jerusalem, and they reckoned that according to the records. They they searched the records to say, do you have a right in Israel? And uh, when we read the Bible, we see our identity. And it say, am I a child of God? Do I have the fruits of repentance? Is there the love of Christ in my heart so I can know that I'm part of God's family? So let's pray, and we will uh, jump in. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it and that it's true and that we can rely upon you. You are a great and awesome God and a father to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for your... Uh, faithfulness to keep your word and that we have such a treasure in our hands. Help us not to take it for granted, not to forget that it's you who is speaking and that you have a lot to say. And may we be good listeners and heed your word as we see in this passage. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for the love that you have united us with in Christ. And I pray that today would be fruitful and a blessing and edifying uh, and bring glory and honor to your name. And it's in Jesus' we, name we pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. 
Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the, pe before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a pretty remarkable spiritual awakening within God's people. They've done this great work for God. They've seen him deliver them from their enemies. The walls have been built. And now it's the people who come to Ezra and they demand, they say, hey, Ezra, bring out the law and read it to us. The men, the women, everyone who was there. That's one reason why Sundays are special for us is because we get to read the word of God together and make it a priority in our lives. And let's not think when they gathered together to hear the law read to them, whom some might say is fairly dry reading, um, and they were attentive to hear it. Let's not think they had nothing else to do. The previous chapter said that they had a lot to do. They hadn't built their own homes yet. There were the walls built, but a lot of them didn't even have a place to live. And yet... They came to Ezra and said, we want you to read the law of God to us. There's a lot of things you could be doing if you've been reckoned among those uh, counted uh, permitted to live within Jerusalem. It was a top priority for them. How happy would you be as a parent? Or like if your neighbor came to you and said, I want you to read me the Bible so I can listen without having any busy work to do, without like just in the background hearing the Bible being read, but like I, I don't want to watch TV tonight. I don't want to play a game. I put down my device. I want to hear the word of God. I mean, as a parent, I'd be like, whoa, this is cool. It would be a little unexpected perhaps, but this is great that you'd, you would want to say, drop everything from sun up, just start reading. And we're going to stand to be attentive to what God has to say to us. The people were largely ignorant of the law. That's why they asked that they read it. It hadn't been read for a long time. And, and I think largely we are ignorant of the law. There's so much in there for us to learn. The more we listen to the Bible, the more we realize how ignorant and backwards we really are. How, how our lives do not line up with God's perfection and his righteousness, how much we have to grow. Because we can know something, it doesn't mean we're actually living in light of that truth. We all need teaching and instruction, rebuke and correction, because we are the crooked ones. I'm the crooked one. I need to hear what God has to say, because he alone is righteous and true. So Ezra, scribe and priest, he brings out the law. It had the first five books of our Bible in it. And it says he read it to all who had understanding. And this is a very good principle for us, that as soon as someone is old enough to understand, they should hear the word of God. Once they can understand speech, the word of God is not too much for them. It's good for them. Because as soon as they have understanding, they are accountable to know it. They're accountable to it. If you can understand it, you're accountable to it. God will hold us accountable. And so if we're going to be held accountable to what's contained in here, well, then my life ought to reflect that. And I can't know it except I hear it. And our faith is according to knowledge. So from daybreak until midday, it says all were attentive. It wasn't tedious for them. They were really intrigued by what was being said. They wanted to do what was being said. And that's a good thing for us to think about is, when you hear the word, is it because you're really anticipating having to do something? Like, I'm listening because I want to do what the Bible is saying. I want to put into practice the things that God is telling me. And that was the heart of these people when he stood before them to read the law. I remember the power of a personal message. When Laura and I were dating, I remember uh, we were at uni, and we would pass letters to one another and and it was always great to get one of those letters. And I would probably, as as it, as soon as it was in my possession, it was something that I was looking forward to reading. And I was going to find a private place, and I was going to read it. And I wasn't just going to read it once. 
I was not, not read it and go, like, Mission Impossible, destroy. But it was like, I'm going to save this because I want to reread it. I want to look it over again. And, and it wasn't like all sappy stuff. Sometimes there were things that I, I literally cried over. There were some hard things to work through. But they were precious because they were from her and I, because I loved her. I loved her, so they were important to me. And if we love God, his word ought to be a treasure to us. It should be precious. It's not just something to, you know, just throw away or listen occasionally when we're in a bit of strife, but to say, this is God's word to me. This is my father writing to me. He's wanting to lead me into all truth. Do you hang on every word of God? Are you leaning forward in your seat and you're like, don't talk to me, God's talking when you're reading the word. But I know that there's so many distractions that can press in. I can open the Bible and it's like a verse and a half in, something pops into my head or the phone makes a noise or something happens over here and I'm like, oh yeah, I've got to do this. It's like, no, no, no. I need to be focused on the Lord at this time. And so it's a discipline we have to cultivate. And if we realize, you know, I'm not too engaged with the Word of God. It is just something to read. It's something, and if it's something sticks, great. Let's confess that before God and say, God, where is my hunger? I want to be hungry. What am I full of that I, I don't have the appetite that I really should for your Word? Let's confess that before the Lord. And, and when we're hungry, then we can open our mouths and He will fill them. Then we'll be satisfied, but we can go, we can be not hungry and approach the word, and, and we shouldn't be surprised that we're not full or satisfied after we hear it. Verse 8, so Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him on his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah, and at his left hand, Pedaiah, Mishael, Halkaijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. When he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the first mention of a platform, the King James Version renders it pulpit, that was specially built for the word of God to be read so people could hear. It says that Ezra stood above the people and when he opened the book, everybody stood up. So when he unrolled that scroll, everyone stood at attention to hear what was being said. He doesn't tell them to stand up. Remember, he did not ask them. He's like, you know what, you guys, you're heathen. You need to hear the law of the Lord. Get over here. Listen to this. God's got something to say to you. That's not how it went. The people asked him to read it, number one. Number two, when he does read it, they stand to attention. He's like, let everyone rise. No, they're like attentive. And as one, that's really important to get. These people are united with the purpose of hearing God's word to do God's word. That's why they're there. And they want to hear it. It's not burdensome to them. They have this attention. And in, in Jesus' day, the teacher, I'm not sure about in Ezra's day, but in, in Jesus' day, the teacher would sit and the pupils would stand. And so when he begins to read, they stand to show that they are receiving, they're attentive to what God is saying. And as he blesses God, it says they lift their hands, they say amen, amen, they bow to their face to the ground in praise of God. And this is a hungry soul here, one that that worships the Lord, praises the Lord. There's a command in the law in Exodus 20:26 20, that the altar where the sacrifice would be offered would not have steps going up to it, lest people in the lower areas see up his skirt, right? It was said, so his nakedness would not be discovered. Now, it does not say whether there are steps leading up to this platform, but we know it's a platform and he was above the people. But I think it's fitting that it would be an elevated place because God has a very high value on his word. It may surprise you, but if you turn to Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2, that God has magnified his word above his name. 
I think the first time I heard that, I'm like, yeah, right. That doesn't make sense. What do you mean? But this is what the Bible says. David writes in Psalm 138, 1 and 2, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. Now, in JJ's right now, the kids are learning the various names of God in Scripture and how they reveal his character, how they reveal his, his nature. And, uh, you know, God is the God who sees. And the one who said that, uh, Hagar, she knew that God saw her. And so God does what his name is. God, our righteousness. God, our salvation, right? He is our God who sees, he hears, he knows. All these uh, titles of God, they tell us about him. But it's incredible God would magnify his word above his name because if his word wasn't pure, they're just written down names that can't be trusted. But because his word is true and pure, we can know these names are an, a, a true representation of his character and who he is. If the word was impure, nothing could be trusted. But because the word is pure and it has been divinely preserved for us, we can know that what Jesus said in Luke 21, 33 is true, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That they're as eternally true as he is. And it's important that his word be viewed in such a way because this is a representation of him and his truth. Jesus asked the Pharisees, what's greater, the altar or the gift? They had said the gift was more important. And he said, well, isn't it the altar that sanctifies the gift? What's greater, the gold uh, on the temple or the temple? Well, the temple, there's a lot of gold in the world, but the temple sanctified the gold. So in the same way, his word, he's magnified above his name because it sanctifies it. it. It says this is set apart to be true, and you can know that it's true. <clears throat> Verse 7, also Yeshua Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Pelaiah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So as he's reading from the platform, there's tens of thousands of people in this area. And there were men and Levites situated throughout the crowd who helped the people understand what was being read. So the law was read distinctly, and then they had these people on hand to explain or to perhaps answer questions that people had to explain the law. Some estimate there to be close to 30,000 people that had gathered. It's interesting, the cities of the Levites were scattered among all the tribes of Israel, and one of the chief purposes of the Levites when not serving actively in the temple was to ensure God's people understood and were practicing the law of God. So if they weren't, they weren't in the temple, all the Levites were not all in the temple at the same time. They had shifts where they worked for a few months, and then they would leave, go back to their families. And during that time, they had that role to ensure that people were honoring God, and they knew the law, and we see them doing it here in this crowd of people. This is exposition. They weren't giving their own take on it. The law was read distinctly. They were helping the people understand it. And this is the key. That, and this is the reason why we have preaching. This is the reason why we have teaching of God's word. is So we can understand what God is saying. Trusting that the Holy Spirit is going to apply that word to your heart. Illustrations and logical arguments have their place, but really it's a work of the Holy Spirit that we could ever understand the things of God. We cannot underestimate the power and necessity of the Spirit in the ministry of teaching the Word. Really, He's the one who gives the sense, right? There is a, there is a, a great value on the preaching and teaching of God's Word, but the natural man cannot receive the things of God, the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, it says of those 
who are born again in comparison to those who are not. It says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. There are times uh, that, that I think it would be so great if during a message or something, if someone had a question, we could answer it. That has its own pitfalls and issues. So uh, we do have opportunities for that. There are times where people will come up after the service and, and ask me to clarify something or to give more in. You know, like, can you please explain this? I don't really understand what you meant when you said that, or I don't understand what the Bible means. This verse is still unclear. I'm really happy to, to talk about those things, and I don't have all the answers. However, when we compare things with spiritual things, we are given insight through the Holy Spirit. Um, and we do have small groups where that is easily facilitated. Um, but when it comes to, think about Jesus and the parables that he shared. It was, a, it was a clever story to some people. Other people just went over their head, and others actually understood what he meant when he said it. And that's the benefit of being a child of God, is we can understand what he's saying, and we can understand how we ought to live in light of it. That's the key. Not just understanding um, what he's saying, but what does it mean to me? How should my life change? Because of what God has said. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to observe and interpret and apply Scripture. We need God to help us study and rightly divide the word of truth. A genuine born-again Christian has more spiritual sense than an unregenerate man boasting multiple doctorates of theology. Because we have the Spirit of God. The author dwells within us. And so this doesn't make us proud, but actually humbles us to realize, like, I can't understand these things. But God will give an answer of peace. He knows. He has the power to transform us, to change us by the things that we read when we obey. Because our growth is dependent on obedience. When we obey, we will grow. Verse 9, Nehemiah chapter 8. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. To this point, we've seen the hearing of God's word. It led to praise and the worship of God. But now hearing it, it gave way to remorse and repentance for sin because they had not been living up to the scripture. Illumination of guilt is one purpose of the law. If you will turn in your Bibles to Romans 3, verse 19 and 20, we see that that's why the law was given, so we could see our sin. It's been compared to a mirror, that when you look at your reflection in the mirror, you can see uh, yourself in truth. Like, man, I look tired, or I look old, or is that chocolate cake from last night? How is that still there? Those sort of things are illuminated. It's not the mirror's fault that the chocolate cake has amazingly survived the night, but like in, in wiping the mirror, wiping the mirror on your face is not going to clean it. I need to be cleansed, right? This is what the law does. Romans 3.19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So law gives us the knowledge of sin, that I am sinful. And I have no excuse because God's word puts it plainly. 
Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not steal. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Well, what about, hey, this is guilty or innocent. There's no other plea. There's no no contest here. So God's word exposes the truth of our sinfulness and guilt, realizing that the punishment for sin is death. That is the the wages of sin. And the people, when they heard the law read, they were excited to hear it. They were attentive to hear it. And when they heard it, they just started weeping. And they go, whoa, whoa, everybody. They were contrite. They were repentant. But they go, today is not the day for weeping. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Today is a holy day. So have a feast. There's people who don't have means. You prepare food and send it for them. You rejoice in faith. Trust God and rejoice. There would be time for mourning and fasting, but today is a holy day. Today is a celebration. God had taken their sorrow away. He says, do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so instead of being focused on their past failure, Nehemiah directs the people to consider the goodness of God. And for his sake, they can rejoice because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I love that, that a day, a holy day is a joyful day. It's a feast day. It's a day to gather together and to help those in need. Over the years, people have mistakenly thought that uh, they honored God by afflicting themselves for their sins, performing some sort of penance. And instead of repenting for their sin and, and doing the right thing, they almost focused on themselves and making their lives uncomfortable as if it made them more holy. Some would isolate themselves in monasteries. They would wear rough clothes. They would eat bland food. It's like, if I could be more uncomfortable, then I'm closer to God. But the truth is, if you're going to receive rebuke and correction from God, if you're going to repent for your sin, you also ought to walk in the joy of the Lord. Like there's a receiving of that. If you're going to receive the correction from God, won't you receive the restoration that God brings? Won't you receive his deliverance and rejoice in that? rather than constantly mourning your faults? Instead of focusing on all those failures, how about repenting and then rejoicing in the Lord who has freed you and who has loved you with an everlasting love? Now, our error today likely is not that we weep too much for our sin, but perhaps too little. We can cry for ourselves, but not for God. Not because we've wronged him. We just feel sorry for ourselves. And because of the grace of God, we might coddle the flesh or dismiss our sin, kind of shrug it off. Like, ah, well, you know, it really doesn't matter how I live because I know I'm born again. Well, you know, it does matter how you live. What did Jesus say? If we practice lawlessness, we'll be among those who clearly were not regenerated. He'll say, you know, enter into the joy of the Lord to those who did things for God because there was the fruit born out in their lives of regeneration. And so if we are in Christ, repentance will be a way of life for us. Helping others, visiting those who are in affliction, helping those who are weak, that will be what we will do, and we will rejoice to do it. So to beat ourselves up instead of repenting or to shrug off our sin without repenting, extreme and dangerous views because they make self the focus. We should grieve over sin, but having repented with tears, we can rejoice. And perhaps those can even be tears of joy, like that God would forgive me a sinner, that he would accept me into the beloved, that I would have these precious eternal promises afforded me at his cost. Have you ever cried tears of joy over that? May we. That would be good. 1 John 1, 3 and 4, it says, The fullness of joy through the word has been given to us. It says, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So fullness of joy, fullness to overflowing without 
containment. No way to quantify it or to conceal it because it's genuine. As genuine as we have eternal life, we can have the joy of the Lord. And then verse 12, it records the response of the people, that all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. So these people did it. They went out, they feasted, they gave to those who had little means, and they were obedient to even rejoice. It's like, rejoice now. Uh, okay. But they, they were able to. They were able to rejoice. And why did they rejoice? The text tells us because they understood the words that were declared to them. They understood. This is how we put into practice the word of God. We've repented. Let's rejoice and walk in it. A day of atonement was one to afflict their souls, to be penitent for sin, but this was a day of rejoicing. There was one time where the disciples of John came up to Jesus and said, hey, how come your disciples don't fast like we do and like the Pharisees do? And Jesus says, well, when the bridegroom's with you, are you fasting? Like to everything there is a season. If you've been looking forward to a wedding and you have this great spread put on that's been prepared and you go, you know what, today is a day of affliction and no eating that food, we've got to be sorrowful right now. No, that is a time set apart for rejoicing and celebrating the union of two people in Christ a man and a woman. And it's like, but Jesus says, but the day is coming where the Son of Man will be taken from them. They will fast in those days. And those are the days in which we live where there is a time for fasting. There's a time to put aside the necessities of life so we might seek God and saying, hearing from God, Walking in his truth is more necessary for me than my daily food. I will deny myself a necessity because I need God and I need direction from him. I like what R.A. Torrey wrote in his book, How to Pray Concerning Fasting. He says, there's nothing pleasing to God in our giving up of things which are pleasant in a purely Pharisaic and legal way. But there is power in that downright earnestness and determination in, to obtain in prayer the things of which we strongly feel our need. This feeling of urgency leads us to put away everything, even things that are normal and necessary, that we may set our faces to find God and obtain blessings from Him. And so that's the purpose of that. We don't need to ever fast for from forgiveness or from the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. That's our continual blessing from the Lord when we follow Him. So Nehemiah 8, verse 13 now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the court of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So they didn't just read the Bible one day, hear it and go, okay, cool. They came back the second day, the leaders, and they go, we need to know what God is saying to us. And they searched the scriptures and we read in Ezra that they had, so 14 years before, they had reestablished the Passover feast, but they had not reinstituted the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And this passage in Nehemiah, it's quoted from Leviticus 23. And they said, wow, the seventh month. We're in the seventh month. It's the right time for us to do this. And they went out and they went to the mountains and they gathered all these various things, these branches of different trees, and they brought them back and they built these shelters to live in for a week. Verses, uh, so Leviticus 23, 41 through 43, it explains what they were to do and why they were supposed to do it. It says, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. 
you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So even if you don't like camping, guess what? You get to live in a shelter for seven days in obedience to the law of God. And that could be a really big sacrifice, right? But I love how the people hear the word and they go, whoa, whoa, this is something for us to do. And they go out and they do it. Worship and praise, the hearing of God's word. They wept in repentance, then rejoiced in obedience. And ultimately, they followed through on what God had told them. So the word had this direct impact in their lives. It's like, I heard it, now I'm going to do it. Have you ever experienced the joy of finding something new in the Bible? Something that you're like, I never knew that. And it can be quite uh, satisfying and, and uh, exciting when we find something new. But a lot of times we can be content to just learn something new or to make a new connection. Where we're like, okay, that's going to go in my back pocket for when that, you know, that skeptic comes up to me and I can talk to them about that or, or something. But how often do our discoveries in Scripture actually lead to changes in my life involving my choices? How often do I read this and then immediately I say, this is changing in my life because of what I read, because God said what to do, and I haven't been doing it, and I'm going to start doing it. And, and I'm happy about it. I would suggest that, that probably doesn't happen as often as it should for any of us. Remember, these people had plenty to do. They had their own houses to build, and they're building booths, temporary structures. They're having to go into the mountains to gather stuff and bring it back. And they're building on their roofs if they had them or in the courtyard, and they, they kept the feast. The word becomes alive to us when we put it into practice. It's one thing to read about Abraham and say, yeah, he trusted God and he left his country. It's a whole other thing when, in obedience to God, you leave your country. Now Abraham, you read him a little differently and it impacts you personally. And that's what I find is when we begin to put in practice the things in Scripture, the Word comes alive in us and it quickens us. I think I've heard people make a distinction between Head knowledge and heart knowledge. Now, I think it might be clearer to say theoretical knowledge and actual practice. That just makes more sense in my mind. It's, I have a very, uh, I guess, a concrete thinking mind. I like practical examples. So it's like there's this theoretical knowledge. It's like book smarts. But then there's actual horse sense that in a real life situation, you can figure out what you should do. And it's the right decision. It's a godly, righteous choice. That's what we need. Not just knowing about things, but actually doing the things that God has said. I can agree that Jesus said, love one another. I'm like, yeah, he said that. And I can agree that, yes, that's a good thing. It's good when I love one another. And when I did love that guy, it was a good choice. When I forgave that person who hurt me, that was excellent. I recommend you do it too. But to actually... Make it real in my life because I'm obeying God in faith. Trusting Him. That's what we need. Because I can know that something's true and I can know something's good, but it doesn't mean I'm doing it. And yet, sometimes in my mind, I think if I know it, I am doing it. Or it's as good as doing it. But it's not. So knowledge is good, but it's useless without corresponding action. Turn in your Bibles, just to illustrate this, to 1 John 3, 22 and 23. And with all the 1 John passages that have been jumping out at me lately, I, I'm thinking we might go there soon. <clears throat> I'm already looking forward to it. 1 John 3, 22 through 23. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
as he gave us commandment. So we see, whatever we ask, we will receive. But there is a caveat there. There is a um, a connection between receiving an answer to prayer when we meet God's condition of belief and loving one another. Walking uprightly. Okay, there's there's a connection there. If we're not actually doing what's pleasing to God's sight, our prayers will be hindered. If I'm not actually listening to the things that God is telling me and obeying, what makes me think that he's going to listen to the things that I'm saying to him? He will listen. He's promised to. But I need to examine myself that I'm, I'm obeying him. Not because I want to get something from him, but because I love him. And so reading about the Feast of Tabernacles, it was good stuff, but the blessing, it came through obedience. It came through actually keeping the feast, going out to those mountains, cutting down those tree branches, and lugging them all the way back. I mean, it's a hilly country. It's a lot of work, but they did it, and it was joyful. Nehemiah verse 17, 8 verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So all the people, they gathered together to hear the word of God. Then they all return with those booths. And it says that they did so according to the prescribed manner. And that manner that was prescribed was prescribed by God, and it was found in the Scripture. And it had not been even about a thousand years since they had celebrated it in this way, where everybody did it. All the assembly, as one man, they gathered to hear the word, they wept, they praised, they rejoiced in God, and they obeyed God. They kept the feast, and it says, since Joshua, they hadn't had a celebration like this. You know, it wasn't too late to start doing the right thing like never before. A thousand years. And it's not like one person could go, you know what, I think we need to do this. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah. And a couple people rally over there and Half the people really don't care. But God had moved the people, and they were submissive before him. They humbled themselves before him, and they said, hey, as one man, we're doing this. We're all in this together. We're God's people. And they, God united them, and they united to do what God had said. And so it doesn't matter how long we've been walking with the Lord. It's never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late to... Begin implementing some things that you've only read about, you haven't actually done. Start doing them as God leads. And the result of this obedience, to do it in the prescribed manner, it says, very great gladness. They were happy. They were content. They rejoiced in God to keep the feast. Now, doing things according to the prescribed manner that's something we find very difficult to do. I'm just speaking for myself. You might try to do it in the prescribed manner, but you can still fail, right? You, you know how you can look at a tutorial and say, this is how you build a fence. And you can try to build a fence, but your cuts are a bit crooked and your nails are, or screws are a bit angled and, and it doesn't quite look like the picture. You know, you've seen the Pinterest fails, perhaps, where someone's like, oh, make a cake. It's beautiful and easy. And you try, and it, it does not look like that. Like, whoa, this is horrible. Now, um, we just like to do our own thing. That's just something that's natural in humanity. And there was a great illustration that I noticed uh, in Cambodia, because my job was Mr. Policeman. My job was crowd control. You know, I, I was told, okay, this is what you do. You direct the people here. You make sure they, they leave at the right time and they come forward. And so I would get the seats set up and I would call someone over and it's a funny thing. You would have that plastic chair sitting there and nearly a hundred percent of the time they would walk close to it, 
adjust it and sit down. Like you would pull the chair to yourself rather than just sitting exactly where it was. And and then I was surprised that I was doing the exact same thing. Instead of just sitting in the chair precisely where it was, I would adjust the chair to kind of my orientation. And that's what we tend to do with a lot of things, whether it's a recipe or... Um, when it comes to God's word, we make those little adjustments. And we don't even know that we're doing it. So that's why we need to be in the word. So we say, hey, what should I be doing? How should I be living? How should I respond when I'm hurting, when I'm having this difficulty, when I have this money? Like, what, what should I do? And God will show you. But we need to do it according to the prescribed manner, not what we think is good. Remember the example of David. A good thing he wanted to do, to bring the ark of God into the tabernacle. This is a good thing. And he it started well. Everyone's playing their own instruments. They're all excited. Yeah, you know, the we're getting back to God. We're coming to the Lord and this is great. And they put the they put the ark of God on a new cart. I mean, hey, put it on a Rolls-Royce if you want. They put it on a new cart and they started bringing it in. Well, Uzzah reaches out because the oxen stumble. He touches it. He gets struck dead. Now it becomes a funeral procession. They're sad and sorrowful, and David's like, whoa, that ark is not coming near anywhere right now. Put it in some guy's house. But after a few months, God's been blessing this guy as the ark is with him. David goes to the word. They begin to bring it out according to the prescribed manner with sanctified Levites carrying the ark with the trumpets of God, not just everyone doing their own thing, putting their own spin on things. And they brought it in. Were they happy about it? Oh, yeah. David's dancing with all his might. People are excited. It was a day of great rejoicing. He's giving food to people. Everyone gets a good cut of beef and uh, or lamb or whatever they were serving that day and wine, and people are, are celebrating. Because they did things according to God's prescribed manner. And that's what we need to do. He has prescribed things. And if we're self-medicating, if we're prescribing what we think is right for our problem, there's no joy in that. There's no satisfaction there. Disillusionment, sorrow, mourning, and grief. But God says, don't grieve anymore. You've repented. Now obey. And the people did, and there was very great gladness when they honored God by doing things according to the prescribed manner. So as I read this chapter, it's like, wow, this is like an object lesson of what we can be as the children of God. We can kind of do our own thing. We can stay stuck in our own ways and in mourning and grief for failures or or circumstances in our lives. Or we can repent and draw near to God as one man to say, whatever the Lord says, he will, we will do. Whatever he tells me, I will do. It doesn't matter if it's going to a mountain and cutting down a tree, setting up a shack in your backyard. I mean, God is wild. He does whatever he wants and however he wants. And so it's for us to obey him and to hear him. Let's just close with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you turn there, please. If we're hungry, God's word will penetrate our hearts. We can rejoice in obedience. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It tells us about the scripture of God and why we have received this word, why God has seen fit to give it to us. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, the Old and the New Testaments, they've been given by the inspiration of God and it's profitable, it's useful. For doctrine, which is teaching, to reprove or convict of sin, to correct us not only by revealing our faults, but by telling us what we should be doing, and to instruct us in righteousness in the ways that please God. 
And why do we know this? It's not just so we can know something. The end is that we can be complete and perfected, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work and thoroughly equipped, not just partially equipped or perhaps equipped, thoroughly, completely, a superabundance of equippedness to do whatever God wants us to do. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved to do them. You read that in two, Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. So let us be those who are hungry to hear the word of God because we are intent on doing it. And you know, God, he's going to be the one who accomplishes it. There was no amount of... It's just cool that it wasn't Ezra priming the pump of these people. He wasn't guilting them into getting close to God. Like, you guys haven't heard the word in a long time. It's time to get cracking, you know. And he didn't He didn't dangle some benefits like, you know, we, we've been disobedient, and if we obey God, we can have great blessings from God. But we're denying ourselves those blessings because of our disobedience. He doesn't say that. God moves the people. And so I trust that he will move us individually and corporately to be those who have a hunger for the word of God, who have a reverence for him, and who put his word into practice according to his prescribed manner. So may God work in us to that end. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is powerful, and it's not just for our heads, but it's for our hearts, it's for our lives, our feet, our hands, it's for our whole selves, for eternity. And it's not going to pass away, Lord. I pray that that our misconceptions would pass away, that our misunderstandings and our our own ideas would evaporate, that we wouldn't do things our way, but we would seek to do them in the prescribed manner that you have given. Thank you so much for your patience with us, and we pray for a move of the Holy Spirit in our midst, Lord, in my heart, in the hearts of all your people, not just in this congregation, but across the world, Lord, the body of Christ, that it would be quickened to return and to heed and to hunger for your word. And that having eaten it and partaken of it, that we would live it out and rejoice in it, that we would be those to whom you say, enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here, for your grace and your goodness to us all. And I pray that we would not take your word for granted, but we would put it into practice like never before uh, so that you would be praised and honored. In Jesus' name. Amen.